Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. This is Ken Root, and I have been a farm boy uh, since uh, the first memory of my life, and we had chickens in the yard. We had a chicken house and a problem with a few uh, animals that like to borrow them from us. I gathered eggs as a child, and at 14 years old, I worked for a uh, company that... Uh, was raising about a million chickens uh, in our neighborhood. That shows me that the poultry industry has been one that since uh, the 1960s has uh, moved toward more commercialization and, uh, quite frankly, more industrialization of being able to raise poultry in confined spaces and produce eggs for those of us across the country. In recent times, the poultry industry has been... uh, fluctuating a great deal because of problems not their own, but brought in by um, avian influenza uh, and other challenges. And of late, there is a challenge with the state of California that says all eggs that are sold into California have to comply with California uh, rules. And that, to me, seems to be a real questionable situation, but apparently it's been resolved in the courts. And now we're in a situation where that uh, we're moving ahead with egg prices coming down of late and uh, consumers expecting to be able to get value for their dollar. I'd like to talk with the uh, head of the and CEO of the American Egg Board for the next few minutes. She is Emily Metz, the president and CEO of the American Egg Board. Emily, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I have friends in the poultry industry at various levels and Uh, They're all industrious people, and their chickens are very industrious. In fact, the poultry industry in the United States is a remarkable thing. I live in Iowa, so I can appreciate the number of laying hens we have here and the amount of eggs that we feed our country. Could you give us a little overview of the uh, impact of the poultry industry on supplying food to the people in this country? I sure can. Well, Ken, it's a pleasure to be with you. Happy to chat with you today. You know, I think it it goes without saying that Americans absolutely love eggs. Eggs are in more than 91% of U.S. refrigerators. Uh, According to USDA data, Americans on average eat about 285 eggs every year. And our egg farmers, you talked about being industrious, they produce around 100 billion eggs to feed Americans annually. Um, And a little fun fact for you, if the number of eggs consumed in the U.S. every year were laid end-to-end, they would circle the Earth at its widest point almost 225 times. So that's that's a lot of eggs, and it's a lot of love for eggs. Um, You know, you mentioned supply and demand. Well, demand for eggs has been going up for the last several years. 
Uh, today, Americans eat about 30 more eggs a year than they did 10 years ago, which is an 11% increase over the 10-year period. And even we all know eggs made a lot of news at the beginning of this year um, about uh, prices being up at the grocery store. Um, even with those increased prices, demand remained very strong. And I think that's because people love eggs and they know that they're one of the highest quality and most affordable proteins that money can buy. Um, so even last year in 2022, when the prices were up at the tail end of the year, our demand was up about a tenth of a percent compared to 2021. So demand remains incredibly, incredibly strong for eggs. You know, several years ago, I was attending the World Food Prize uh, and the exposition that went with it every year in Des Moines. And there was a man who would come in from Elanco, Eli Lilly, and he wanted to get his message across that in this world, if you could just get one egg a day to children up until four years of age, you could pretty much assure they would have normal development. And I thought that was an amazing statement of something that could be utilized in any society in the world and be able to feed children in that manner. I believe I know the man you're talking about, Mr. Jeff Simmons. He's a big, big supporter of eggs and and feeding the world with eggs. And I couldn't agree more with his premise. We actually are partnered at the American Egg Board with a uh, organization called Hatch for Hunger, which is an organization he's very involved in. And we are are attacking hunger by providing eggs uh, to those most in need. And also a little known fact, but a lot of food banks struggle with protein donations because they don't have the right refrigeration for them. So it's a bit, it's the most requested item at food banks is eggs and milk. But a lot of those food banks don't have the right refrigeration to be able to accept donations. So we are actually this year going to donate more than 40 uh, refrigerator coolers to food banks nationwide so that they can accept even more donations of eggs for the people that that want and need them the most. So we're really proud of that that work that we're doing this year. And our farmers are very happy to make sure everyone who wants an egg can have an egg. Emily, let's talk about the production side, and I won't get deep in it because I, I can't, and perhaps you can, but I would encourage you not to. I would make it to where that the situation with the chicken is that the chicken accepts being put into um, a confined space and produce eggs in large quantities. And I know we've bred up the chicken. I know we have changed the uh, structures in which we place them. Uh, And we've made it to where that the chicken has performed incredibly well. I'm looking at some data here that shows since 2002, the laying rate on chickens has gone up to about 300 eggs per year per chicken, which is nothing short of amazing to me on that productivity and efficiency that uh, clearly has to come from management and breeding and uh, labor and technology. Yeah, I think it's all of the above, Ken, to be honest. You know, farmers year after year, learn a lot about the animals that they care for and and especially for you know layers which are the chickens that lay eggs as compared to the chickens that are raised for meat which are called broilers in the technical term um, our layers are meant to you know stay happy and healthy so that they can produce eggs and to your point 
you know, our farmers work very hard to make sure that they do just that. And there's a lot of different production styles out there. You know, you mentioned conventional is what we would call it, where each each hen has a designated space. Um, there's cage-free, which a lot of the industry is converting to or has converted to, uh, where the chickens are out kind of in an open space, but still in a barn. There's obviously free range and pasture raised. And then, you know, even within those different housing systems, there's organic and, you know, conventional. And that has to do with the feed and some other inputs there. So there's a lot of different options. But we like to say at the American Egg Board, there is an egg for everybody. There's an egg for everyone's value system. But at the end of the day, the common denominator there is that regardless of what system that hen is being raised in, it would not be producing if it wasn't healthy and if it wasn't happy. Um, And so I think that production increase speaks to how well these birds are cared for by our farmers coast to coast. Our guest is Emily Metz, who is the president and CEO of the American Egg Board. And although she did define that poultry is in broilers and in layers, we're going to keep this over toward the layers because for those of us who go to the grocery store, we have seen a fluctuation in the price of eggs. Uh, We've seen that for well over 10 years now, brought on by a number of things, as I said at the beginning, that are not necessarily the fault of the industry. High pathogen avian influenza Uh, spread by migratory birds, has taken an incredible toll on your industry. Um, I don't know how some of your producers have even stayed in business on what they've had to go through. Yes, it has been a a very hard time for for our farmers. Um, But like anything, you know, I think you're you're a farm boy, Ken. You know that farmers are used to hard times and it makes them stronger somehow. I don't know how they do it. But, you know, last year was certainly an incredibly challenging year with many of our farms having been devastated by outbreaks of of avian flu, despite a lot of effort to improve biosecurity. So as you may know, the last outbreak of avian flu was in 2015. The industry took a lot of hard knocks, but they learned from the lessons of that outbreak and they implemented a ton of new mechanisms to try to protect their birds. You know, we had farmers that were busting in their employees to reduce foot traffic. We had farmers that were installing laser light systems to make sure that Uh, Wild birds were not landing on their property and giving them the opportunity to spread disease. We had farms that increased their shower-in and shower-out facilities to make sure that no germs were entering those facilities. So just a huge investment in both infrastructure, worker training, all of the above, and yet we still got hit very, very hard last year. Um, I think what my farmers are saying is it's something we're going to have to live with and continue to manage around, and farmers are constantly learning and improving, and they've put even more mechanisms in place this year to manage around this virus, which again, as you said, we can't control. It's spread by wild birds, it travels around the globe, and it seems to be kind of cyclical in nature. And so we'll deal with that just like we deal with every other challenge on the farm. And I know our farmers will rise to the occasion like they always do. Emily, the uh, earliest outbreak that I recall happening in Iowa uh, was back in the first uh, decade of this century. And uh, the challenge at the beginning of it, for those of you who don't get the grasp, the scope of this, was that depopulating those entire houses of birds took a tremendous amount of coordination 
to be able to do it within the law. And uh, I knew a lady who worked for uh, solid waste disposal for the state of Iowa, and she spent most of a year going to landfills, convincing them that they could take these birds and they could landfill these birds to be able to then get rid of them and to be able to start all over in those houses once again, which took a tremendous amount of cleaning and work to be able to free it completely of the pathogen and start again. This last year's, as I understand it, you had the legal avenue to do this, but it was quite expensive for you to bring those producers back into production. It certainly was. You know, this this disease is not only devastating from the standpoint of, you know, farmers are devastated when their birds are sick, obviously, number one, but it is also devastating from the standpoint of the financial investment that our farmers have to make in order to deal with the effects of bird flu. And you mentioned depopulation being one. Um, And so that investment is something that likely will never be recouped by by our producers. It's just something, unfortunately, that they have to build into their business plans um, to deal with this disease. Yeah, that uh, is not going on on my end, but we'll work around uh, that sound if you could hear it. Emily, what about vaccination for these birds? Uh, I saw in France that they're looking at doing that. Is there any prospect that we can beat this high pathogen avian influenza by vaccination? I think it's one tool, Ken, that is in the toolbox for our producers. And it's there's certainly a lot of discussion, you know, like with everything else, it's unfortunately, it's not a silver bullet because the vaccinations would affect all poultry, not just egg farmers. So it would affect turkey, turkeys and broiler chickens as well. Um, and there are some unintended consequences of vaccination on international trade. And so for us in the egg industry, our exports are certainly growing, but they hover around 3%. For chicken and turkey farmers, they export a significant amount of their product overseas. And so the impact of choosing to vaccinate might impact their markets overseas. And so this is one of those areas where birds of a feather kind of got to stick together here and we need to navigate through this with our poultry brethren in the space to understand the effects of choosing to vaccinate um, and also the complexities of the vaccine. Again, it would not be a, a silver bullet necessarily in terms of vaccinating against every strain of avian influenza, similar to how the flu vaccine works in humans. So we're navigating through those through some pretty high level ongoing discussions from leaders within all of those uh, poultry industries. Emily, as you look uh, at your industry today, could you tell me if it is continuing to consolidate because partly of the cost uh, and the hit that these poultry producers are taking because of this avian flu and the expense they have to lay out and the money that they have to have available to be able to stay in production. Consolidation is is certainly happening, and, and I don't think that's unique to us, Ken, in, in poultry and, and in eggs specifically. I think we've seen that across agriculture um, as those costs continue to rise. And I would say the, the pandemic was, was a large uh, portion of those costs as well. I don't think you can just attribute those costs to avian flu. You know, you have inflation at play here, but you also have supply chain challenges that still continue to linger from the pandemic, packaging, 
um, materials. You know, we had farmers that were looking to put in new barns and couldn't get steel and couldn't get wood um, during the pandemic. And so those those costs have continued um, to increase and to supply chain challenges have continued to linger. And then you layer onto that bird flu, you layer onto that the inflationary environment that we've been in and we're in at the beginning of this year. Um, and those are all things that I think have contributed to uh, some of our farms um, consolidating and, and going out of business, unfortunately. And I think, like I said, you see that across agriculture. That's not unique to eggs, at, certainly by any stretch of the imagination. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept Hearing. Taylor, I've worn your hearing aids for almost 20 years with great results. I have a question, though. Is falling and hearing loss related in elderly people? You are very correct in that, Ken. Um, you know, individuals that have even a mild hearing loss, the risk of falling triples. And every 10 decibels that your hearing loss, wor- hearing loss worsens, it increases your risk by 140%. By the time you get to a severe or profound, you're talking, your chances of falling are extremely high. And how that comes into play, you know, we talked about dementia before and, you know, that it pulls from cognitive. But the other area that your brain pulls resources from to focus on untreated hearing loss is balance and gait. So the ability, you know, you think about, you know, when you get up from a from a chair, you don't think about getting up. Your brain says, well, I need to get up. And you just you get up and go. Individuals that now have the, the you know, risk of falling, they have to brace themselves. They have to, you know, use support. They actually have to think about getting up from things or, or making that move of, well, I'm going to go from here to here, or, you know, they're out on a walk and having that spatial awareness of who's around them or what's around them. They lose that, that ability to hear that. So they lose that ability. You know, one of the, the, um, big ones was um, Jack Campbell's grandfather down um, at the bowl game. He was going to step out on the street and he didn't hear his family tell him to not cross the street. Falls are the leading cause of accidental death in adults over the age of 65. So we're not talking individuals, you know, 80 and 90 years old, which, you know, they do fall in this category because typically they have a hearing loss and they're they're just a little they're balancing gates a little more off but we're talking the age of 65 and above is something that you know a lot of individuals need to you know understand and you know understand how it all plays into to every you know everyday life thank you taylor schedule your free hearing screening at concept by iowa hearing by calling 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Our guest is Emily Metz, who is the president and CEO of the American Egg Board. Well, the poultry industry uh, was the first to really show that it could consolidate well ahead of the pork industry. Uh, you may, may not think this is very funny, but there used to be a word, especially in the 1980s, called the chickenization of American agriculture. And it was a derogatory word. Because what it meant was that other industries were following the poultry industry in consolidating. And the pork industry was especially angry about this at that time because the bigger pork producers seemed to be able to be more powerful than the smaller pork producers. The poultry industry had already shown that you were more efficient if you were larger. 
because the animals would handle it and you could handle it. And except for this avian flu, you've still shown you can handle it. So I wonder how your own people feel about the consolidation they're doing, because I'm sure they they themselves may not want to move as fast as they're moving. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my, if you look at my board members, they they look at it as, as an evolution of the industry. You know, I think we also can't talk about consolidation without talking about the fact that a, a lot of farming is generational, and there's just not as many children that are returning to the farm anymore. Um, You know, you hear my board members talk about that reality a lot, that their kids don't want to come back to the farm, um, that they will be probably the last generation on their farm because their kids want to go and do other things and they've been able to provide them with those opportunities. And so I, I think that's also at play here, Ken, when you're talking about consolidation. Um, and the fact that the farm might not continue for a fifth generation because those children don't want to come back and, and work on the farm. Well, that's really no different than the dairy industry, for example. Correct. Yep. People who put in, you know, a lifetime of hard labor and the next generation says, you know, you got me an education. I don't have to do this. Um, it provided uh, an impetus for move for upward mobility uh, in our society. Uh, but yet we still need the food. Uh, and we still would like to produce it in our own country, which brings me to what I consider one of the most fascinating man-made problems that you guys have. Let me first say that the top states for egg production are in the areas where there's a lot of feed for the chickens. In other words, Iowa with corn, Indiana with corn, Illinois, uh, Ohio, that's the top area, then Texas, and then other states right in the middle or southeastern part of the country. But the consumption, of course, is in where the population centers, much of that on the West Coast. Emily, California uh, has this initiative program to where that they can uh, put things on the ballot and put laws into effect. And uh, this started years ago, and you probably know the litany of it, chapter and verse, But we've wound up now with your industry nationwide having to produce eggs by California standards if those eggs are going to be sold in California. How much disruption in this industry did that cause? It's it's interesting, Ken, because obviously we're not the legislative or regular regulatory side of the industry. You know, Egg Board's mission is really about demand, understanding what consumers want, and looking at how we can remind consumers that there's an egg for everybody and that eggs are perfect for every occasion, right? But I think this what's happened in California is is a amazing case study in how far removed American consumers are, the average American consumer, from what happens on the farm. You know, you grew up a farm boy. um, You grew up surrounded by agriculture. Not many Americans have had that opportunity to do so. And so they don't understand all of the ins and outs of producing food. And so when they read something on a ballot that talks about you know, would you want your chicken living in these conditions? Of course, their gut reaction when they see it described, you know, that way is, well, no, I wouldn't. But they don't often understand that the way those chickens are raised, there are variations, but they're all uh, top notch in terms of animal welfare. And and so I think 
what's going on in California is a great case study in the job that we still have yet to do in agriculture, including at the American Egg Board, in connecting the average American back to their food and helping them understand that production in this country is done in a way that respects the animals, is done in a way that respects the environment, and that we, to your point, produce food in this country that we don't have to rely on other countries, which is a very unique situation that not many countries in the world have, that we can feed ourselves here because of the American farmer. And so, you know, our farmers will comply with any legislation that gets on the books, but we've got some work to do when it comes to connecting the consumer to their food source so that they better understand how hard our farmers work. Well, when this first came up, uh, there was a congressman by the name of Steve King from Iowa who said, uh, this violates the interstate commerce clause. So therefore California cannot require other states to conform to its state standards. And, uh, that didn't seem to go anywhere. And then your industry seemed to just accept and change, but the pork industry uh, up until the Supreme Court ruling this year, was still fighting this, weren't they? You know, they were. Um, and again, that that's not that's not our role. Our role is demand focused. Um, but I think that goes to show on our end, our farmers are always willing to adapt to meet the consumer where they are. Um, but like I said, I, I still think that there's work to do there in terms of helping consumers understand what's really behind this legislation and connecting them to their food source. Right now, we've got about 30% of our eggs produced will come from hens raised in a cage-free environment. Um, And that conversion to cage-free will take a lot of time and significant financial investment. And I think there's also an opportunity for a conversation about who should bear the cost of that investment. Should it be the retailer? Should it be the consumer? Should it be a little bit of everybody along the food chain? Those are some of the challenges that we're dealing with right now. Well, you get the consumer's attention when your egg prices go up. And uh, there were many people in the last couple of years that were shocked by the, by the change in egg prices. Uh, now egg prices have come back down significantly. And perhaps we can talk about your bailiwick in uh, stability. Do you feel like... Uh, if we don't have another major outbreak of avian influenza, you can have stability on egg prices uh, for a while? Unfortunately, Ken, you know, I did not bring out my crystal ball today. Um, however, you know, I think it's a great reminder to your listeners that egg farmers are price takers and not price makers. And so our our goods, i.e. eggs, are sold as commodities and wholesale prices are driven by the market forces of supply and demand. So certainly bird flu pays into that supply side of things um, and demand even more so in terms of remaining very strong plays into that. But I also think, you know, it's worth noting that wholesale prices for Midwest large eggs, which is, as you know, the national standard for pricing, are currently around $1.12 per carton, which is down nearly 80% since the peak week of December 30th uh, of 2022. And according to our Nielsen data, um, the average price of a dozen eggs at the grocery store is now about exactly where it was in March of 2022, which is before inflation and the bird flu. And that average price right now is about 243. Um, So that's you know, it's come down significantly, but there's also, you know, the conversation here that farmers aren't setting that price at the grocery store. 
Um, and so I think that's worth noting as well. And just reminding people that farmers are price takers, not price makers. A while back, I was talking with a lady in Canada. She was on Vancouver Island. She had five acres and she was raising uh, several thousand chickens. And she laid out the Canadian political uh, requirements, uh, I guess the uh, quota system that they have, which I wonder if you might react to, very different than ours. She pretty much was guaranteed a price for her eggs based upon their system. Do those eggs come into our country, um, or is it just that American producers can look to Canada and envy the way that they support their producers? probably the latter can more than anything else we're not we're not importing eggs from canada here and into the u.s um and i think you know i i was in the dairy industry for a long long time and i would say especially when we were negotiating trade agreements i was on the legislative side of the dairy industry for quite a few years uh there is certainly some envy for dairy from dairy producers about the quota system in canada and how farmers are guaranteed a certain price and so i think you know, again, it's a different system than what we have here in the U.S. And, um, you know, there's probably a little bit of envy from our producers, but there's a lot of things that I'm sure the Canadian producers envy about us as well. So it probably goes both ways. <laughs> well, you said there's an egg for every person, and I'd like to conclude with that because even without the disruptions that you have had to endure, I stand there at the egg counter at the grocery store, and I'm amazed at the different prices on eggs that are all there. Every front there from free range to all kinds of other descriptions on down to the lowest price. And I wonder why the grocery store has to provide that um, rather than providing eggs that all cost the same amount of money. My truthful answer is because there's a different cost, you know, that goes into those production systems. And I think, again, to my point about how we need to continue to do a better job of connecting the consumer to their food source, they need to understand those realities of the impact of their choices. You know, there's no right or wrong choice, but there's an impact to every choice we make on everything, not just on food, but on eggs in particular, you know, Conventional production, for example, uh, has some hot, has less uh, less impact costs because our farmers have gotten very efficient at doing it. You know, there's a reason we we have taken to raising chickens indoors in individualized uh, locations. Right now, with cage free, we need to continue to get in more efficient in that style of production and learn that because that's what the consumer has said that they would like to do. In terms of pasture raised and free range, those chickens are outdoors. So there's certain externalities that happen there um, that need to be accounted for. And so all of those different choices and different production styles come with different impacts and different costs that have to be accounted for along the supply chain. And so that is an opportunity for us to present those facts to the consumer and let them, let them make the decision that's best for their family, both from a budgetary standpoint, but also from a value standpoint. And I remain that there is an egg for everybody. If a consumer eventually wants a blue egg, by golly, my farmers will learn how to raise blue eggs. And that will, that will be their new challenge for sure. Well, there's green eggs, you know, from some of the, <laughs> one of the breeds at this time. Yeah. I wondered to conclude somewhat humorously what the reaction of your industry was of the number of people during COVID who decided to start raising chickens. 
Some of them have said uh, it's uh, expensive. Uh, others said it was fulfilling. Others said it educated my children. But I wonder from your industry um, what your reaction was. I, I think the reaction was uh, gratitude that people were learning about just how hard it is to produce produce food. You know, I read an article the other day that there was a gentleman, I, I think he was in Europe somewhere, and he sought to produce everything that he would need for a egg sandwich, a breakfast sandwich. And it ended up costing him $1,600 and about a year to be able to make all the ingredients that he would need for that egg sandwich at home. And so I think that's a great lesson with people raising chickens at home. I saw a lot of posts about how do I get rid of these chickens? We actually got a ton of calls at the egg board about, do you guys adopt chickens that, you know, are coming from people that have taken them on during the pandemic? And we were like, no, we don't, but we can probably connect you to some people who do. So I think a lot of people learn that lesson the hard way that it's a lot harder to be a farmer than you think. Well, I can leave it at that. And I too do agree with you. And no matter what the size and scale of the operation, you still have those individual animals and our husbandry and our care of those is a primary concern of the people who are raising them for the productivity that serves the American consumer. Yeah. Emily Mates, thank you very much for being with us. You're the president and CEO of the American Egg Board. I truly enjoy talking with you and uh, good luck in Washington for the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Ken. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.